may be seated. We are going to continue and dive deeper into a subject that we began last Sunday. We're in the seventh chapter of Romans. Last Sunday, we came to Romans chapter 7 and covered verses 1 through 4. I won't take the time in this service to do any kind of a review. I just want to jump in. And we're going to settle in on Romans chapter 7, verse 4. There's an incredible, profound truth stated here that I want to spend the morning trying to unpack for your understanding. Let me read Romans chapter 7, verse 4. I'm reading out of the English Standard Version. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to one another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. Paul makes a statement here about the believer. And here is what he says, that the believer in Jesus Christ has died to the law. We're going to work on getting a handle and understanding what is in that profound truth. We touched on it just briefly last Sunday. First two things I want to ask and answer is this, related to the truth that the believer has died to the law. Number one, when does the believer die to the law? And number two, how does the believer die to the law? First question, when? When does this death to the law take place in the life of a Christian? Is it something that will eventually happen to the believer? Is it something that is currently taking place in the believer's life? Or is it something that has already happened to all believers? Is this death to the law A long, drawn-out process? A slow death? Or is this death to the law an instantaneous, decisive death that happens in a moment of time? That's where I want to start. And the answer to that question can be found by looking closely at the verb that Paul uses in the Greek. The Greek language that the New Testament is communicated in, I believe this is directly under the design of God, that it is a language that is so precise. It is a language that really clears up through the way it uses its nouns and its verbs and its subjects, the syntax of the sentence, makes it very clear what is being said in the sentence. And so there is a verb used here by Paul, a very specific verb. He could have chosen some other words, but he chose a very specific verb, and he put it in a very specific tense. And understanding that will open up the truth in part to what he is saying here. The verb translated in the English here, that you have died if you're a believer, you have died to the law. That could also be translated, that's an accurate translation, it could also be translated, the sentence could read like this, just to bring out another nuance of the idea here. Likewise, my brothers, you also were made dead to the law. You also were made dead to the law. Here's the tense of the verb. It's in the errorist tense, and that brings with it a very specific meaning. It means at least these three things. It always means in the errorist tense these three things. It means that it happened at a moment in the past. That this death to the law that is true of the believer happened at a moment in the past. It was instantaneous. It was decisive. 
It's not an event that will happen in the future or in the believer's life is happening in the present. This is true of every believer. This death to the law happened in a decisive, instantaneous moment in the past. Secondly, this death is a completed death. That's included in the use of this verb here. It is completed. In other words, the death that has happened fully happened. It is a one-time action. Here's the implication. It is unrepeatable. It is unrepeatable. It is fully completed the death happened, it is over and done unrepeatable. That makes it final. That is all true in that understanding of the tense of the verb that he uses when he writes to fellow believers, you also have died to the law. That death to the law Happened at a moment in the past. It was a completed death. And it was final in that it will never happen again. That's a truth about every single believer. And the moment, the instantaneous, decisive moment when that happened was when you put your faith in Jesus Christ and you were saved. That is the moment when you died to the law. Second question, how does the believer die to the law? Now here here is where we're going to get a little deep. But what I'm asking you to do, I'm asking you to, Really try to tune in. It's a little warm in here this morning. I'm asking you to really try to tune in because the truth that we're going to talk about here is such a radically vital, important truth for the believer's life. The truth we're going to talk about really is going to answer this question. I'll state it at the beginning and then as we walk through this. We'll come back to it again at the end. And here's the main truth that it's going to drive at. What was the primary purpose for Jesus Christ's death on the cross? I want you to just lock that question uh, in your mind and then let's unpack this. How does the believer die to the law? Paul wrote here, My brothers, you also have died to the law through what? Through what? What's it say up there? Through the body of Christ. That our death to the law is somehow directly related to, contingent upon the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. So if we're going to ask the question, how does the believer die to the law? We're going to have to center the question on Jesus Christ. And what does the law have to do with his body and our death to the law through his body? I try to follow the train of thought here. It's deep, but it is so profound. I'm going to give you three or four points about the body of Christ that are going to feed into this idea. Number one, first, Christ willingly subjected himself to the law. Christ willingly subjected himself to the law. Galatians chapter 4, verse 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law. 
That verse says that Jesus Christ, in his incarnation, when he left heaven and he came down to earth and he joined into the human experience, that he was born of a woman, that he joined his divine nature to the human nature. That's what that means. And he did it fully. He did it completely so that he was both fully God, but also 100% fully man. He fully entered into the human reality. And here is a key truth about what it means that he entered into the human reality, that he was born of a woman. He was born under the law. The human race, when you were born, you were born under the law of God. You were born under the law's legal claim over your life. Because we are children of Adam, Romans chapter 5, verse 12, down to the end of that chapter, we spend a lot of time walking through that. We are condemned in Adam. We sinned in Adam. We are born under the condemnation of the law. We are born under the law's legal right and claim over us. We have to obey the law. And if we don't obey the law, we are under the wrath of God instead of under his blessing. The law's requirement is that you obey it perfectly, fully, all the time, or you don't and you're a sinner and you're under God's judgment and wrath. And so when Jesus was born of a woman, he was born under the law. Here's what that means. He subjected himself to the law. He put himself under the requirements of the law. He made himself subject to the law of God like you and I are subject to the law of God. So that it was a legal contract where he had to obey every single point of the law, every command of the law, every precept of the law. He was under the dominion, under the subjection of the law of God. He willingly submitted himself to that. Secondly, Under that subjection, here's the second truth, Christ perfectly obeyed the law. Christ, having submitted himself to the law and its requirements, its commands, its precepts, its demands, he lived perfectly in line with the law throughout his entire life, those 33 years or so that he lived here. He obeyed every command, every precept, every decree, Never did in his action, did he step outside and break the law of God. Never in any word that he spoke, never in any thought that he had, never in any desire of his heart, never in any motive, was it ever out of line with the law of God. He perfectly obeyed the law of God. And then thirdly, or Christ fully received the law's penalty. Christ fully received the law's penalty. Now, couple that with the last truth. Christ perfectly obeyed the law. That means the law had no just demands over him. Because he had perfectly obeyed it. The law had no authority to condemn him. Because he had did everything that the law had said. But the third truth about Christ's humanity in relationship to the law. Is that he fully received the law's just penalty. And now let me explain what I mean by that. We're coming to the centerpiece of the truth here. Jesus Christ, when he hung upon the cross, 
what happened there on the cross is that, and the Bible tells us this explicitly, that the sins of the world were placed upon him, that he received in himself the sins of all humanity as the guilty party. He hung on the cross, the one who had perfectly lived without sin, became the sin bearer of every sin. Past, present, and future. And then what happened in that moment? Here's what you need to see about the cross of Christ. What happened in that moment is that the law of God rose up against the Son of God. The law of God in its justice demanded that the sin now on the Son be punished until the full legal demands of God's justice against sin were extracted in the punishment of the Son. And so Jesus hung there with our sin and the law took out of His body. Romans chapter 7, verse 4. His flesh and blood took out of His body the punishment that the law demanded be carried out against sin. All of the punishment. Every drop that the holiness of God, every drop of God's wrath that His holiness demanded be paid for sin was extracted from His Son. And then what happened? Before I say that, think through this. What venue, what was the venue within which all of that happened? Those three points. What was the venue within which Christ subjected himself to the law? What was the venue within Christ Christ perfectly lived a sinless life? What was the venue within Christ fully received the penalty of the law's justice? It was in the venue of the body. It was in the venue of his humanity and that flesh being hung there on a cross. Go back to Romans chapter 7 verse 4 on the slide there. That's why Paul writes that we died to the law through the body of Christ. It had to be through the body of Christ into which he entered into our reality. He experienced our existence. He subjected himself to the law. And then on the cross, he took upon himself our sin and the law rose up against him in its justice and extracted the penalty out of the son. And then what happened? Then Jesus bowed his head in death. And here's what happened at death. The law and its legal jurisdiction, its legal authority ended at the moment of death. That death that he experienced was physical, yes, but it was so far beyond physical. It was a spiritual separation from the Father. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Was the cry. There's no way we can fully understand what happened in that moment. But in the death, when he bowed his head in death, what happened was that the law was satisfied. The law had done everything that it could do to him. The law 
took every demand that it could take out of him. And when every demand was satisfied, Jesus bowed his head in death and the contract that he had with the law of God in that subjection ended. And then he came out of that subjection. Once the death had occurred, no longer was he under the subjection of the law. Now I want you to Try to remember last week what we looked at in Romans chapter 7, verses 2 and 3. The point Paul was making was this. The law has jurisdiction over a person only as long as that person lives. And he used a woman and her marriage to illustrate that. But he's not given a lesson about a woman and marriage and remarriage and divorce. It's about the Christian life. And he's illustrating it with something that, he, that the people knew. And so he used this illustration to say, when a woman is married to a husband, that law of marriage is binding on her. And the way that she gets out of that law, the only way she gets out of that binding legal contract is when her husband dies. And then at death, does that contract have any place in her life anymore? No, she, he's dead. There is no connection with that contract and her anymore. The marriage is ended. That is an illustration that Paul is using to get at a spiritual truth right here. And the truth is that Jesus Christ, when he died, he ended that subjection to the law of God that he had willingly come down in the flesh and put himself under. So that Paul is identifying that so that he can teach us this. That when we are united to Christ, that in his death we died. He's been teaching us that all the way through Romans chapter 6. Christ died to sin, and in the same way, we were crucified with him in his death as believers, and so we died to sin. He's saying the same thing is true here. Just as Christ died to the law, if you're a believer, you died with him to the law. That contract is ended in your life now. It no longer has any legal claim over you. Why? Because the legal demands of the law were fully met in the one man, Jesus Christ, for all sin. Jesus fully satisfied the law of God. It can never rise up and demand anything from him again. And Paul is saying, likewise, that contract, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, that contract, that legal binding relationship that you had to the law before you were saved, it is over. It ends. And it ends at the moment of your salvation. Because at the moment of your salvation, in that decisive, instantaneous moment, what happens is you're united to Jesus Christ. And the believer's union with Jesus Christ means whatever is true of Christ related to the, his death to sin, whatever is true of Christ related to his death to the law is true of you. It's true of you. Now, make application here. We could understand that the law has no authority over Jesus anymore. He perfectly lived in obedience to it. And then, even though he was not guilty of the sin, he fully satisfied all the demands of the law against sin. And then he paid the ultimate price unto death, physical, spiritual. And now he is done with the law. And we can say, absolutely no way will the law of God ever have any claim legally over his life anymore. Easy to agree with that. And Paul is saying, 
It should be just as easy to agree with this reality. It's the same for you. It is the same for you. And it has everything to do with your union with Christ. That has been the subject matter from Romans 5, 12, all the way through Romans 6, all the way into Romans 7. It's going to carry on all the way to the end of Romans 7. The believer's union with Christ is the main doctrine here. And what that union with Christ means is that when we placed our faith in Christ, we were baptized into him. We were baptized into his death in a very real way eternally. At a moment in the past, at a decisive instantaneous moment. And when it happened, it was a completed death. That union was so perfect that it was a fully completed death. And not only was it instantaneous and decisive, and not only was it completed, it was also final, unrepeatable, complete. That is our reality, so the meaning is this. The law can never, if you're a believer, rise up against you in its legal claim over your life because you're dead to it. You're dead to it. The truth, the layers of truth, really the unsearchable layers of truth that is in that reality, you could spend your lifetime unpacking. But what I want to show you is now I want to come back to the question I asked at the beginning. What is the primary purpose of the death of Jesus Christ? What is the preeminent number one reason for which Christ died? The number one reason is not for you and me. That's a secondary reason. The primary reason that Jesus Christ died was to honor the law of God. Let me say that in another way. It was to vindicate the justice of God. You see, Adam and Eve sinned in the garden. God's judgment in the garden is that sin, if you do this, Adam and Eve, sin is going to bring death, physical and spiritual death. Sin is going to receive the full weight of my punishment and down through history, the sin continued. But where was the judgment of God? If God is a holy God, if God is a just God, where is the justice of God being displayed? Sin is going unchecked. Sin is advancing. Sin is pervasive. Is God really a just God? Is the law of God really true in what it says? And that question hung over humanity from the time of Adam until the hill outside of Jerusalem. And on that hill, when Jesus Christ died, that question was answered once and for all time so that through the death of Christ, what was shouted out over history is this, God is a just God. God is a God of absolute justice. He is a holy God. That is his essential nature. And his holiness is seen in the righteous way that he judges 
and leads the affairs of men and his righteousness demands that when there is disobedience against his holiness, that it be punished. And the law of God demands that that punishment be death all against all sin. It will be death, physical, spiritual. And when Jesus died on the cross, what happened was all of that punishment was handed out. All of those demands that the law had, that had been held back until that time, they were fully satisfied in the person of Jesus Christ. So that the shout that rang out is this, God is just. Look to the cross, God is just. He does what he says he will do. He will not be trifled with. His law will be fulfilled. And so Jesus fulfilled the law of God. The number one reason Jesus died on the cross was an honor to the law of God so that he was vindicating the very just nature of God. And then secondly, in that primary work, what happened is this. That by vindicating the justice of God, by meeting every demand, every legal demand that the law required in himself, in his own punishment, he made a way. He made a way for the second primary purpose of the cross, and that is to save you and me. He made a way so that God could still be just in his punishment against sin and also be the justifier, the one who justifies you freely by grace, not because of anything that you've done, but only because you come to the Son who has fully satisfied the demands of the law of God. That is the only way you can come and be justified. The only way. Because without the work of Christ done for you, you are a sinner and deserve the wrath of God. But Jesus satisfied it for you. So he both vindicated the justice of God in a death that honored the law. And secondly, he made a way for you and I to be justified. And all of it was done through the body. That's why our death to the law is directly connected to the truth about the body of Christ. You cannot separate those two things or they make no sense. The only way we die to the law is through the body of Christ. If that death has not happened, if you have not been united to Christ so that his death becomes your death, then the law still has legal jurisdiction over you. You are still under its authority and its curse. You see, it's really a divine irony. What the law did to Jesus Christ in the doing of it set us free. It was the work of the law demanding and extracting the punishment out of the Son In that work is found our freedom. It's so important that we understand that when we see the cross. To see that it's really all about the holiness of God. That's the primary purpose. Because if we do not see that, We can have a self-centered view even of the cross of Jesus Christ. We need to see it as an act 
related directly to the holiness of God so that we can avoid sliding into the one, one of the two extremes that Paul is dealing with here in Romans 6 and Romans 7. Romans 6, the extreme is, all because of the grace of God, I am free, I am secure, nothing can ever happen to me, and so I'm going to go out and live like the devil and sin because I am secure in my position in that free gift of grace. So they're using grace as a license to sin. Paul dealt with that all through chapter 6 of Romans. He fully refuted that heinous lie. And then there is the second extreme that we could swing into. We could, as a Christian, having been saved by Christ's death through his body, been saved, truly saved, then when we blow it as a Christian and we mess up, we can slide into legalism and feel through the pull of our sinful human nature that we need to somehow try to work our way back into a right relationship with God, that we're going to have to obey his law and do what his law says so that we can now be at peace again with him. And that is a lie as well. It is only the grace of God through Christ that saves us the first time. It is only the grace of God through Christ that cleanses us of sin following that conversion. It's all what Christ has done. So beware of the extreme swing into a license into sin and the extreme swing into a legalistic position of trying to keep God's grace by what we do. The holiness of God should make the thought appalling that now we have got the grace of God, we can go and sin as we like. The holiness of God should make that an appalling thought. And at the same time, the holiness of God should make the thought that we can somehow either keep ourselves secure in our position with him or work our way back when we take some wrong steps. When we understand the holiness of God, it should make that a ridiculous thought. His holiness is so transcendent, so exalted, so much higher than we are that we could, to think we could ever in any way work our way into a right relationship to him is out of balance. So the holiness of God understood teaches us to avoid both of those extremes and to stand squarely on the person and the work of Jesus Christ who through his body died to the law and through our union with him, we then die to the law so that just as the law can never extract from him any more legal demands, it can never do it to us either because the union is complete. His death is ours. His resurrection is ours. The freedom he has from the law is the freedom we have from the law. Now what I want to do is I want to just spend the last little bit of time here. And I want to zero in on the mind-boggling characteristics, truths about this union that we have with Jesus Christ. First thing, just one aspect of the nature of this union. One aspect about the nature of this union that we have with Jesus Christ. Let me state it, then I'll explain it. It is an unending union. Now, what I want you to do is I want you to remember that the marriage illustration is being used here. He's referred to that in verses 2 and 3. He's referring to it again here in verses 4 when he says, You've died to the law so that you may belong to another. 
The believer is a part of the bride of Christ. Christ is the groom. We are the bride. It's not an individualistic thing. It's a communal thing. It's true of all believers of all time. We make up the bride of Christ. We are freed from the laws, demands, In the marriage we used to have prior to salvation, we're freed from that through the death of Christ so that we can enter into a new marriage with Jesus Christ. The point is this. It's a legally accepted marriage. It's legally accepted. The point he was making in verses 2 and 3 when he was illustrating the woman in marriage, was this. The woman that is in a marriage contract, if she goes out and marries another man while her husband is still alive, what is she called? She's called an adulteress because the first marriage is still intact and now she's joining herself to someone else. So legally, the first marriage is still binding on her. But then he says this, Truth again on the positive side. But when her husband dies, she's freed from that first marriage. It no longer holds her. It's an ended marriage. Therefore, she is now free to enter into a new relationship. The point is not about that woman's marriage and divorce and remarriage. The point is this. It's about our union with Christ. And he is saying to us that the death that we have had with the law... has ended that first marriage. Legally, it's finished. So that we now can legally enter into a new marriage with Jesus Christ. Not as an adulterer, but as a genuine bride entering with a new groom in this relationship. It's legal. It lines up with God's justice with the demands of his holiness. It fits. That's why it had to be the death of his body on the cross. And so what is the nature of this union? Here it is. It's an unending union. Now let me show you the biblical logic of that truth. And ladies and gentlemen, I didn't used to believe this. I didn't see this for several years. Now I see it everywhere in the Word of God. The point being made is that the law is in force over a person until the person dies. That's the principle. That's the principle. Listen to Romans chapter 6, verses 8 and 9. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Why? Because death no longer has dominion over him. Why? Because he has fully satisfied the demands of the law. The power of the law was death. But Christ has fully satisfied the law. Its power has ended over his life. He will never die again. 1 Corinthians 15, 56. The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. Christ has already received the sting of death and he defeated it through his resurrection. Christ has already met the powerful legal demands of the law. He satisfied them fully. Here's the conclusion. When he died and rose again, he is done with the law. Never again will it hold power over, of death over him. And Paul is saying, likewise, Romans chapter 7, verse 4. Put that up there again, please. Likewise. 
You died with Christ as a believer. That means this. You died to the law. You died to the law. So the same thing that is true about Christ is true about you. And here it is. We've not only died with him, but we have been resurrected with him. And Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. You can say that about you as a believer. Death no longer has dominion over you. Why? Because you've died with Christ. The law has been satisfied with you in your account and you have risen with him. Now you're outside of the law's purview. You're outside of the law's legal jurisdiction. It can never demand anything from you again, just like it can never demand anything from Christ again. So, take that legal understanding of how the law works in its power unto death and apply it to the marriage relationship of the bride of Christ, the believers, to the groom. How long will the marriage last? Jesus said, outside of the tomb of Lazarus to Martha, mourning over the death of her brother, a close friend of Jesus, he said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. And then he made this statement. He who believes in me will never what? Will never die. He who believes in me will never die. Not death physically. We're going to die physically. But we're no longer under death's dominion if we're united to Christ. Death does not have a power over us anymore. In fact... Do you know what death is for us as a believer? It's a portal to life. It's the threshold over which we step into eternal, full life. It doesn't have a dominion over us. It does not slow us down or set us back. Death catapults us into what is truly eternal life. So here's the equation. If the only way that the contract of marriage can be ended is through death. And Jesus Christ the groom can never die again. And the believers in Christ the bride can never die again. How long is the marriage going to last? Can anybody add one plus one? It is forever. Nothing can end that marriage because death and its sting has been removed. It's a marriage that cannot be broken because the groom can never die and the bride can never die. And the only thing that can end the marriage is the death. Therefore, the marriage is an eternal one. It is an unending marriage. One last little section here. Related to this marriage, this union that we have with Christ. What are the riches of that union? Let me give you a couple statements about the riches of Christ just to set the stage here. 2 Corinthians 1.20 For all the promises of God find their yes in Him, in Christ. Meaning, every one of God's promises, all of His riches that are available are all found in the person of Jesus Christ. Remember, if you're a believer, you're united to Jesus Christ. You're placed in Jesus Christ. If 
all of the promises are in Christ and you are in Christ. You get it? Secondly, Ephesians 3.8, Paul wrote this. A couple of phrases out of that verse. He said, to me, this grace was given to preach the unsearchable riches of Christ. What kind of riches? Unsearchable riches. Would you say that? Ready, go. Unsearchable riches. You know what that means? That means they are beyond calculation. That means that they're bigger than you can even get your mind around. They're greater. They're deeper. Your finite mind is not going to be able ever to fully grasp the infinite realities of the riches of Christ that are at the disposal of the believer. So, all I want to do here, since you don't have enough time and I don't have enough knowledge to give them all to you, I'm just going to give you a few highlights of the riches that are yours because of your union with Christ. And here's the first one. You have his name. Oh, that we could understand the reality of that right there. You have his name. You are his bride. You have taken his name. And what kind of name is the name of Jesus Christ? It is the name that is above every name. It is the name to which every knee in heaven and on earth and under the earth will bow. It is the name that breaks the bondage of sin. It is the name that drives out and casts out the enemy. It is the name that has all authority in heaven and on earth. That's your name. If you're a believer in Christ, that's a riches that is applied to you. It's your name. Oh, that we could try to remember that when we get up in the morning and we put our feet on the ground first thing to remember that we are after the namesake of Jesus Christ. Have you ever been ashamed of the name? Oh, how... Brutal it would be is to be ashamed to carry the greatest name of eternity. Number two, another aspect of the riches, the unsearchable riches of Christ, we have open access to the Father. told the church service, the first service here, this was illustrated right before I, you know, during the worship time. This concept here. Ash was up here leading worship and into the back of the church the church was singing, we were rocking out in here and, and Karen came in with Autumn, his little daughter, kind of trotting along ahead of her. And she looked up and she saw her daddy up here playing the guitar. And it was pretty loud in here, so only those directly around her could hear. But she said, Daddy! And she just made a beeline for the stage. Mom was about 10, 12 feet behind, so she had to shift it into high gear. And she caught Autumn about the time she was mounting the second step here onto the stage. But I just felt like the Lord prompted me in that moment and said, you see that little girl right there? What she's thinking in her mind is I have open access. It's my daddy up there. It's my daddy up there. And the reality about our position in Christ is we don't have a mama that's going to stop us at the second step. We do have open access The veil has been torn. The way is laid open. We are always welcome where the Father is. Because 
what he sees us as is in the son. He sees us perfect in the son, in the son's holiness, in the son's righteousness, so that he is our daddy and we can, without abandon, run right into his presence. Night or day. Whenever we need to. In fact, church, he wants us to run into his presence far more than we do. Not only do you have his name and not only do you have open access, but you have daily provision and protection. Just a verse, Philippians 4.19, And my God shall supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Number four, you have an exalted standing before the Father. You have an exalted standing. One of the riches of your union in Christ is that you have an exalted standing before the Father. 1 Corinthians 1.30 And because of Him you are in Christ who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. What is our standing? God sees us righteous, sanctified, redeemed. Bears of his wisdom. First Corinthians six three. Consider this related to our exalted standing. Do you not know? Paul wrote to believers that we are to judge angels. You see, what Christ did in the cross did not just bring us back and restore what was lost in the fall so that we entered back into a similar relationship like Adam and Eve had before the fall in that garden in an unbroken fellowship. It took us way beyond that, way higher than that. It exalted us right into heaven. In fact, church, it took us beyond the position of the glorified angels. And it made us joint heirs with the Son of God so that we are seated at the very right hand of God Himself. That is a part of your riches in Jesus Christ related to your union with Him that happened instantaneously in a decisive moment when you placed your faith in Christ as your Savior. Fifth truth, fifth aspect of our riches, again, related to angels. Have you ever thought about this? We have the service of angels. We have the service of angels. The writer of Hebrews, speaking about angels, said this in Hebrews 1.14, Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? What the angels are doing right now is they are serving in the unseen realm those who are to inherit salvation. It's a part of our riches. And then finally, last one that I'll mention. In the treasure chest of your riches in Christ, the unsearchable riches of Christ, is another gem about you reigning. You will reign eternally with Jesus Christ. You will reign eternally with Jesus Christ. 2 Timothy 2.12, if we endure, we will also reign with Him. We will reign with Him as a part of the bride of Christ throughout all eternity. Involved in productive, divine service in worlds yet unknown. It's a part of your riches. All of those things, they are in themselves unsearchable in their depth. And there is an inexhaustible list 
along with the few that I mentioned. All of that is true because at a decisive moment, if you're a believer, at a decisive moment in time in the past when you placed your faith in Christ, you were united to Him. You were married to Him. And all of those things come with that union. And in that union, you died to the law. And you rose to new life so that you could enter into a brand new relationship with Jesus Christ. Would you stand, please? What I want to do as I close here is I want to pray a prayer. I want to give you an opportunity if you are here this morning. You have heard the gospel, the good news, truth about Jesus Christ and what is available to you through Christ. If you walked in here, not a Christian unsaved, under the legal judgment and condemnation of the law, you can walk out of here free from the law. You can walk out of here forgiven. You can walk out of here married to the groom Jesus Christ in an unending eternal union. Let me pray for you. Father, I just give to you words of my mouth, meditation of my heart here frail as they are. Trust your spirit to do what I ask you to do at the beginning. You take it and make it clear and send it deep and let it take root. Let those roots spread out and the vine grow up and there be fruit manyfold fruit of salvation and the fruit of the Spirit produced in life. If you want to make that decision this morning, I'm just encouraging you. You can come to the altars here. You can do that wherever you want to do it. Just have some time where you talk to God. Just use, use your own words. Just talk to Him about your recognition of your sin. You realize that you need a Savior and that before the holiness of God, you're guilty. That you believe Jesus is the one that has made the way for you to be forgiven by paying the full demands of the law and His death and gaining victory through His resurrection, now offering that to you through faith. And just talk to him about that. Cry out for his salvation. Lord, I pray for them. I pray that you would let faith come alive in the heart. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Bring a harvest of some new souls into your kingdom right here this morning. And then, Lord, secondly, for those who are followers of Christ, Oh, God, would you help us to catch a vision of your holiness? To really understand, to the best of our ability, what Christ did through his body on the tree. So that the combination of those two realities, the holiness of God and the agony of Christ, that we would think differently about sin than we think. And that we would never try to use the grace of God as a license for sin. And that we would never try to walk down a legalistic path to earn 
such a precious gift, but that we would keep it centered on Jesus himself. See in him full sufficiency. Keep our trust there and there alone. And then motivated by that act of love that we would go out and live hearts aflame, wills zealous for your glory so that our actions line up with the truth that we know. Give us the power toward that end, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to do two more songs. Um, I just feel so incredibly implored to encourage you as...